Hello and welcome to Viking Age Environments. I'm Rebecca Boyd and today I'm going to be talking to Annalee Newitz, who is the author of a fantastic new book called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. Over the next hour or so, we'll be talking about the rise and fall, but mostly the fall, of four archaeological cities. These are Pompeii, Angkor, Cambodia and Chatelhoyuk. Now, these are very different size and scale from our towns, from Dublin in the 9th century or Cork or Waterford in the 11th and 12th centuries. But what I wanted to do was talk to Anna Lee about some of the concepts we can transfer regardless of scale from a large scale to a smaller scale settlement. So for the next hour or so, we're going to talk about, about agriculture about the role of religion in towns, about trade and exchange and all sorts of things. But mostly what we'll talk about is people. Why do people choose to live in towns? What is it about urban life that is so exciting? Why do people want to be urban? What does it mean to be urban? So let's get started then. Annalie, thank you for coming to talk to me today. Um, we're here because we both love cities and talking about cities and thinking about cities. Um, I work in a very different scale of city to the ones that you have been looking at in your book in Four Lost Cities. Um, and I look at towns, really, at quite small urban places in Northern Europe. These are the Viking towns, places like Dublin and York and um, Birka and Kaupang in Norway and Sweden. Um, and they are much, much smaller than your cities. Um, but I think that, first of all, maybe could we start by talking about what is it you think makes urban life urban? You have one lovely phrase in your book um, that life in the city is all about the delightful chance meetings and life-changing random encounters. I think, could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that there are a number of definitions of cities. And so that's one of the things that um, I really struggled with in writing this book is thinking about um, all those different definitions, um, a lot of which really come back to uh, V. Gordon Child, who was an anthropologist in the early 20th century. Uh, and he kind of set the tone by saying, you know, cities are engines of productivity and that they're really all about work and about um, basically money and economics. And what I found was certainly that is very important. Um, that is a big driver of um, urban growth. But what brings people to cities really seems to be um, community and, um, for lack of a better term, parties, because one of the things you can do when you get a lot of people together is throw an amazing celebration, whatever that celebration is, whether it's celebrating the community itself, celebrating a nation, celebrating um, some kind of spiritual uh, event celebrating a seasonal event like harvest. Um, and we see throughout the archaeological record, and I know you must see this in your towns as well, um, signs that people have had um, huge bonfires, they've feasted. Um, archaeologists say, you know, there's, there's sort of signs of a feast that you can distinguish from a regular meal because when people feast, they often throw bones away without chewing everything off the bone. And that's how you know they're partying is because there's a big pit full of half-eaten meat um, or half-eaten bones. And when I say half-eaten, of course, it just means they haven't taken every little single piece of the bone and used it for something. They've, they've tossed it away because they're partying. Um, so I think one of the things that archaeologists are contemplating now are all the sides of the city, all of the attractions of the city that don't seem entirely rational to us. You know, it seems rational to go to a city to get a job um, or to go to a city to get um, stuff to buy or trade. But going to a city just to meet people, just to have a party, um, it seems to defy logic. Um, and yet this is one of the reasons that people seem to migrate to cities. They come to party and then they stay because they they decide, wow, this is great. You know, I met a bunch of new people and uh, expanded my horizons and I can just build a house here. Great. I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, I haven't even 
thought about that, the idea of feasting within the town. Um, and it's something that actually in Dublin, we have no evidence for at all. Um, really? Yeah. Now, possibly it's because we just haven't looked for it. There's been very limited work done. Mm-hmm. But off the top of my head, no. What The Vikings do it, though, hey? They do. There's they do. Plenty of the, parties. Yeah. <laughs> loads of parties there's a wonderful site in iceland um which is exactly that it's a feasting site Mm -hmm. and so this is in iceland at the very edge of the world at the edge of the known world in the the ninth and tenth centuries and they're having huge feasts there and people are coming for miles around but uh, we don't have that in dublin yet anyway and that's something really interesting and i wonder if it is wonder if perhaps it's to do with christianity with the fact that ireland is a christian country at this time I mean, you can still have a a feast, even if, I mean, I don't, because not all of these feasts seem to be necessarily spiritual in nature. Like some of Mm -hmm. them are just, it could be, you know, feasting for, for harvest or for, you know, some other celebration. It can also be feasting for a Christian holiday. Like people do, you know, they're not always holy on a a Christian holiday. There's a bit of partying. I mean, there's praying and then there's partying. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's just something to think about. Yeah, exactly. Looking, Um, look, look for big, big fires. (laughs) I mean, big non-destructive fires. (laughs) Not where the whole street burns down because everything is made of wood. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I suppose it's something else that we haven't really got very much knowledge of. You alluded to it there when you were talking about harvests and seasonality mm-hmm. um, and farming. Something that comes out through all your cities is the interaction between farming and the urban life. Um, maybe with the exception of Pompeii, it was less obvious when you were talking about Pompeii. But Pompeii did have significant agriculture. That was part of yeah. the reason why it was a prosperous town, was that yeah. the, the volcanic soil all around that region let them do multiple yeah. harvests per year. So, yeah, yeah. they yeah. had great food there, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lucky them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would say that agriculture, you know, going back as well to child's definitions, um, mm-hmm. you know, that agriculture is an essential part of the city, of urban life. You know, you have to get your food from somewhere. The city has to feed itself. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things in the modern world that we forget because often the way that the city is presented to us is as part of a binary where it's city versus country. Mm. And it's actually much closer to city and the country. Um, When we think about the package of things that make up a city, Um, So the package could include, you know, high density living, um, you know, feasting, um, uh, monumental architecture, lots of other stuff. But part of that package is agriculture. And it's been that way for thousands of years. And what's interesting is that I think in the last couple of decades, archaeologists are starting to question the received wisdom, which was humans had agriculture, they got surplus stuff from their agriculture, whether it was food or, you know, textiles or whatever they were um, growing. Um, And then they built cities. And now it's starting to look like it's a lot more complicated than that, that maybe sometimes people built um, permanent settlements before they had something like organized agriculture. Um, Gubekli Tepe, which is a Neolithic Mm -hmm. site in Turkey, um, it's a ceremonial site with um, massive stone architecture, um, you know, massive stones, a a bit like something like Stonehenge actually arranged in a circular pattern. And, um, and they're covered in um, uh, very elaborate carvings of animals. So we know this was a ceremonial site. We know that people probably came there seasonally, but there was a sort of skeleton crew of folks who may have Mm -hmm. lived there all year round. But this is a place where people did settle and they didn't really have formal agriculture at that time. Um, So it seems in that case that the city came before agriculture. Um, And then we also now have um, a lot more evidence of proto-agriculture going back about 45,000 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So we know that that agriculture doesn't kind of emerge full-blown suddenly 12,000 years ago or 9,000 years ago or 4,000, depending on where you are in the world. 
Um, it actually was developing really slowly through a number of different channels um, and different kinds of agriculture, depending on what part of the world you lived in. So I think when we imagine the history of cities, we have to think of it that these cities kind of emerged slowly out of this braiding together of agricultural practices and settlement building. Um, and that they, in different parts of the world, different things came first, and sometimes agriculture would emerge and then recede, and settlements would grow big and then grow small again. And so it's really, it's funny because V. Gordon Child talks all about revolutions in his writing. Mm -hmm. Like there's a sudden revolution and we start building cities. And it, it wasn't like that at all. It was actually much more like um, the really, really slow plotting evolution <laughs> um, where it just went very little bits at a time. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to someone else yesterday um, and he works with um, uh, the impact of volcanic eruptions in 6th century Scandinavia. Uh, so before the Viking Age, and the, the traditional argument has been that you see this huge crisis in the 540s when these volcanoes erupted and this, you know, immediate impact. But it's not, he's arguing that it's not. It's a much longer process of change that's always ongoing and that it is that process of evolution that the eruptions might be they you can pinpoint a moment when something changes but it's not the the be all and end all of that change yeah that's right and yeah. we and it is true we see um you know communities reacting to climate change um mm -hmm. and to you know droughts um cooling um you know there have been a couple of cooling events over the past mm -hmm. ten thousand years that have really affected settlement patterns but for people living through it it wouldn't have looked like anything at all, I think. I mean, I don't think that people yeah. would have said, oh, we've got to change our ways instantaneously. Quick, build a house. You know, it would have been, you know, generational. Like one generation would have been like, you know, sometimes it's nice to stay settled for six months out of the year, you know, and then the next generation might be like, well, what if we did seven months, you know, and gradually they start staying put um, for longer and yeah. longer periods of time um, or building their houses differently. Um, there's some counterexamples to that. Some of the cities I've looked at did really have periods of, of rapid transformation, which were almost certainly caused by social movements. So once you have social movements in the mix, you can change stuff really fast, but they're not usually in response to um, some kind of global natural event. It's, it's usually a combination of, you know, environmental and social. Again, in relation to Dublin, that, you know, have you ever been to Dublin? Have you ever? I have, yeah, Dublin? but I haven't been to any of the archaeological sites. Unfortunately, just the urban <laughs> sites in in Dublin. In Dublin, oh no, that's the archaeology. It's right, Temple Bar. Have you been to Temple Bar? Mm -mm. No. Okay. Um, well, it's right in the the heart of the city, and that is the Viking heart of the city. You know, it's where all the stag parties and hen parties, the bachelorette parties, um, go to all the pubs there. It's it's the European capital for those parties. Um, oh, but yeah. that is the Viking heart of the city. Um, oh, yes, I have I have been there. I was you probably, you probably have. Yeah, I'm looking at a map now. Yeah, I didn't know it was called yeah. Temple Bar. But yeah, no, I walked all along the river here. And... Yeah. It's lovely. It's, it's I have to say it's one of my favorite parts of Dublin. I used to live right in the middle there. And it's, yeah, yeah it's, just... it's such a beautiful city. I really yeah. loved being there. I liked the beauty of it. And then I liked a lot of the cultural things. Like I feel like in Dublin, they've really, <clears throat> people have perfected scrambled eggs on toast in a way that is <laughs> shockingly advanced. Never, I've never seen it any other place. It's <laughs> like every day I'm going to eat this. <laughs> and you can tell yourself it's good for you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it has egg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's quality food. We have very good food in Ireland. We do. <laughs> um, but where I was going with that was, um, so the, the, the origin of our city of Dublin is right in the heart of Temple Bar. And, you know, people are just trundling along for centuries beforehand. And then all of a sudden in the 840s, the Vikings arrive, they come and raid mm -hmm. Ireland. Um, and in 840, 841, there's a, a historical record saying that they stayed for the winter, meaning they didn't go home up until right. then they'd gone home every summer after raiding. This is in the 840s. And then suddenly by 860s, 870s, so really, really rapidly, we have this urban form of house, this rectangular building in a long, narrow property plot. 
along a street front, all nicely lined up, and it's completely urban. But it has it emerges so rapidly within a couple of decades that there's a lot of you know there there's argument and discussion and debate over where it comes from, because there isn't a huge urban tradition in Scandinavia where the Vikings come from. Interesting. Um, so it does. It emerges really, really quickly, and I, yeah. You know, was there the, ever is there that social movement there's there, there is something happening that it's obviously that a social movement the catalyst I, is it it's not necessarily the vikings because they didn't really come from towns right and they didn't build in that i mean i know that they had longhouses but they didn't build yeah. on like a grid right no no is it I, I mean is it possible that they were trying to imitate like a roman town like they'd heard of roman towns and they were like oh well Romans built on a grid. That's, that's the way it went. Um, no, I don't think so. Um, we didn't really get Romans in Ireland at all. Which, lucky um, for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they decided we were just, we were across the sea from Wales. It was just that little bit too far. Not worth yeah. it. So <laughs> Not worth colonizing. <laughs> wow, that, um, that, to me, that is the so sign is, yeah. Ireland of is a social different. movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and as well... There's, again, we have these wonderful historical records from the early medieval period. We've got annual lists of key events and main figures. And it says, you know, for every every year, it says that such and such a, an important abbot or bishop died. And there was an attack of the Norsemen on this date at this place. Or there was mm-hmm. there was a drought and all the animals died. So it's this wonderful resource. Within that, we have a couple of named leaders from Dublin, a couple of you know key political figures, but they're not really likely to have said, we want a town, build a town here. This is going to be Dublin. This is going to be a town. The, the relationship doesn't, doesn't seem to have gone like that. So they're not political figures spearheading the development of a town. It really does seem to be something organic. Wow, that is really unusual that you would get an organic development of something that was very organized like that um it has to i mean even if it was maybe like a a council of people um you would Mm -hmm. expect because it's very hard to build a grid or build something that's a kind of an organized town layout um if everyone is just doing their own thing Um, there has to have been an element of community organization there are these, these boundary fences that pop up in at the start you know in the mid ninth century in the mid to 800s and they are they stay in existence wow. um, for hundreds of years and this is all built along the river right along so the it's river, yeah yeah which makes sense so it's it's definitely being it's a town this is one of the things that we see all the time with the development of urbanism is that um, oftentimes cities and towns don't exist in isolation, that they're kind of built along transit structures, um, whatever mm-hmm. those are, rivers and, you know, are a great one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously roads, once you have, you know, people who will build roads for you. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I want, it, it may also have been respon- in response to other places people had seen on their travels along the river um or something yeah it's that's yeah. a great history i love the idea of like yeah. and then our just, city emerged we don't know what happened even more complicated then you know our dublin is the only town in ireland for 200 years it's developed town right like there's farms and villages there's farms and, and there's <clears throat> not really villages what we do have is we have some uh, monastic sites which are kind of sometimes right. called proto-urban sites monastic towns but this brings me on to the next question that i wanted to ask you and it's yeah that, yeah you know whether you can have a, a religious city. One of the arguments that's made about monastic towns in Ireland is that they can't be urban because the, their primary function is that they are religious. So the question is, can there be a monastic town ta- or can can urbanism and kind of a spiritual space coexist or? Yeah. Um, and I'll point out as well that we're talking about very small little villages. Right. How, so how big... But how big? Yeah, say maybe 200 meters by 200 meters. Oh, yeah. So what do you think the population is in a place like that? Population, um, a few hundred. Okay. So typical for a, a village. A village, yeah. Yeah, or a town. Um, but, but a village very much built around the church, around the ecclesiastical functions of prayer and worship and around feeding the monks in the monastery mm-hmm. and providing mm-hmm. for them. 
But then there is a little bit of evidence for productive activity for industrial work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the picture is not as clear cut as people used to think. So, yeah, maybe could you speak a little bit about whether these tags... I can. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's um, it's interesting because when I was researching my book about cities, this was something that came up a lot that surprised me. Um, I kept, again, I was kind of stuck in that that V. Gordon Child preconception that cities were all about sort of economic productivity. And people kept saying to me, nope, this is a city that's a, a spiritual center. People didn't come here to trade. They came here for spiritual sustenance. Um, and that's particularly the case in uh, one of the cities I look at called Cahokia, which is mm-hmm. um, an indigenous American city um, actually a bit contemporaneous um, with yeah. the founding of Dublin, um, which is kind of interesting. And it's also a river city. Um, so the city really starts, it's it's a tiny village. Um, and then something happens um, in like the mid 900s. Um, and we're not entirely sure what it is, but a lot of people start coming into the area. And then within about a century, it has become this incredible spiritual center where um, there are packed earth pyramids, this massive earthworks. Um, At the Mm -hmm. center of one part of the town, there's a massive packed earth pyramid, which just literally means like it's built from dirt that's been and mud that's been packed down. Um, And it's a flat topped pyramid. So people could stand on top of it and kind of speak to crowds. Um, And its footprint is about the size of the Great Pyramid at Giza. So this is an enormous, enormous pyramid that people have built by hand. Um, And this is so there's a couple of things that tip archaeologists off to the fact that this is urbanization connected with spirituality. One of the things that tips them off or that Mm -hmm. has led to this hypothesis is that the city was built very quickly. Um, It was for a long time believed that you couldn't possibly build these massive earthen pyramids on a fast scale. But now there have been some excavations showing we can actually see basket loads of mud that have been dumped into these um, structures. Like we can, because the mud is slightly different colors. So you can sort of see how it was built very quickly by lots and lots of people literally carrying baskets of mud and packing it down um, uh, within, you know, like a couple decades, like this is not, you know, a slow process. The city is built into a very strict, uh, North South grid. It actually has a kind of, um, a Stonehenge like place that's called Woodhenge, which is, um, a lot of the architecture in the city is wood and it's, and wooden poles are a very important architectural feature. And so Woodhenge is wooden poles in a circle that mark the solstices, um, and these were the people who lived at Cahokia, um, who were kind of the ancestors of a lot of different uh, native um, nations and, and tribes. But um, they definitely had um, a form of worship that brought people together uh, seasonally uh, around these structures um, and around ceremonies at these structures. And a, another hint that this is um, a kind of spiritual fervor that develops the city is that it's not a city based around trade uh, at mm-hmm. all. And I kept <laughs> kept bugging archaeologists and saying, like, but where were they trading? And they would just say, you know, like, look, this isn't, that's not what's going on here. Like, we don't have any mm-hmm. evidence that people, there's no marketplace. There's no money. We have no evidence of any kind of um, even accounting that took place. Um, and there is a, an enormous plaza at the center of the city where people certainly gathered to do public events, one of which was sports. They loved sports and they had mm-hmm. kind of a, a sporting uh, culture <laughs> um, and all of the Mississippian culture that's associated with Cahokia, because Cahokia is just at the center of a massive river culture called the Mississippian. Um, They all play this game called Chunky. Um, But they also are coming to Cahokia for ceremony. They don't come with goods and leave with goods. They come empty handed um, and they leave with very small items that are clearly mementos like Mm -hmm. Little um, Cahokia was famous for its beautiful pottery, its incredible uh, projectile points and chunky stones. Chunky stones were what you played the game of chunky with. 
but the the stones are very beautiful they can be i mean they can also be just a stone um but they're kind of like hockey pucks and they're they're sanded down and they're they're shined up and they're in beautiful different kinds of stone and so people would take those home um and so we know that this was you know people were were taking that home like in a in a wanting to remember whatever spiritual event had happened um, or social or ritual event. Um, We also see an even more developed version of this at Angkor um, in Cambodia, which is at the center of the Khmer Empire, another huge city, um, and also doesn't have an economic system. Um, Doesn't, well, it has an economic system, doesn't have money, I should say. Mm -hmm. And it's not a civilization that's based around trade it's based around um, spiritual relationships that are established through temples. And so many of the outlying towns that are associated with Angkor, Angkor is a spiritual center. All of its palaces and public architecture are based around Hinduism and then later Buddhism and then later a kind of hybrid of, of Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and people are administering the empire through the temple system. And mm-hmm. so um, when people do, when people pay their taxes, they pay their taxes in labor, and that's all done through temples. So it's, you know, you kind of um, administer through this temple system, which is, of course, very familiar to us in the West, because this is a little bit what the Catholic Church did for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was partially a government administration and partially spiritual. Um, and that's what we see all over the place at, at Angkor, for sure, and in the Khmer Empire. So I think there's actually, and this kind of goes back to Gobekli Tepe, um, that Neolithic site, which is a very, very early example of urbanization, and it's entirely spiritual. And so some uh, archaeologists argue that the city comes out of spiritual rituals um i in my work because i don't know we can't be sure what was happening in the neolithic i always say that it's kind of social movements because social Mm -hmm. movements is a broader term that can encompass both kind of of yeah it can it can encompass religious ritual it can encompass nationalism it can encompass like just something that we might not even imagine like just sort of community celebration of a thing that we don't know (laughs) what it is anymore because it's nine thousand years ago um so but the point is these are all ways of these are all motivations for building villages proto cities and cities Mm -hmm. that are spiritual or social Um, And I really think that's the key ingredient because cities are such a counterintuitive technology and development that, I mean, humans were like roving bands of nomads for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. (laughs) Um, And then suddenly we started doing this crazy thing where we were instantly building a town in in what became Dublin, you know? Yeah. and I think that has to be traced back to a kind of social or spiritual urge. And um, it really is quite common. Like I, I've, it's very rare to find a sudden urban development that is rational. That's like, aha, we have found a treasure trove of <laughs> items and we are going to allocate those items according to an economic system and, and rationally build a town here because there's so much wealth in the land. Um, that's just, that's unfortunately not how people really think. Um, <laughs> so they, they tend to have other reasons for gathering together, spiritual reasons or social reasons. Yeah. Coming together and then staying together because going back to what we said at the start, it's, it's that with those encounters with other people and the, the excitement of being around other people. Yeah, I think I think that becomes yeah, I think that it we we have obviously ample evidence from history that people come into those kinds of spaces and then love them so much that they don't want to leave. And, um, you know, nomadic life must have also had all kinds of appeal, lots of novelty. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess something changed and we started developing social systems that um, worked better, occasionally worked better (laughs) 
in cities. That's the other thing about cities is they're so rare until recently. You yeah. know, there's such a weird aberration. Like, um, I don't, I can't speak though to, to things like villages like Dublin, although Dublin sounds like it was quite rare when it was first founded. Like it was the only mm. place in Ireland that was like yeah. in any way urban um, yeah. or, or proto-urban, I guess you could say. How big, yeah. how many people are living in, in Dublin when it's first being built up in, in the 800s? The, uh, the 800s, oh, I'd say it's a couple of hundred. Right. It's very small. The, the only formal estimate we have is that about 5,000 people by the year 1,000. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty good, that's urban, right? Like yeah. Once it's, yeah. Especially if nobody, if everybody else is living in tiny villages, like in and my estimation. Conglomeration of people in Dublin. Imagine like if you were in a city or not a city, if you were in a small town of 50 people and you came to a place that had 5,000 people, that would be nuts. You would feel yeah. overwhelmed. You'd be like, wow, this is the biggest thing this I've ever amazing. seen. Amazing it's- or terrifying. Exactly. Either one, right? It would be awe-inspiring because that is a lot of people. And that's, I mean, to me, ultimately, like, cities are relative to their environment, Mm. right? So if it's the biggest game in town, it's a city, you know? Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter if it's 5,000 or a million. Um, You know, even now in the modern era, a million is like, whatever, that's like a medium city, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's so strange to think about that. Yeah. Um, there's a, a couple of things you said there that I want to come back to. Um, but a, another, you know, I mean, I'm talking about Dublin all the time here because I love Dublin and I know Dublin, but also because it is really interesting. It is this aberration. Um, and something really interesting happens in the year 902 that, again, it comes back to the relationship between the leaders, the political elite, and then the people who actually live in the city, the people who mm-hmm. made the city, the people who stay there. Because in 902, we have the record that the Vikings are kicked out of Dublin. They're mm. exiled from Dublin. Um, and up until 20 years ago, we had nothing to prove or disprove this. You know, we just had this textual record um, that they left in 902. And then they came back in back to Ireland in 917 and retook Dublin. Or I came back to Dublin in 919. Mm-hmm. Um So, you know, it had always been assumed that the Vikings abandoned Dublin and there was nothing there for that 15 year period. But there was an excavation in the 90s, which showed the continuity of settlement of that everyday normal life in that period of expulsion. So the city stayed. It wasn't abandoned. It didn't Mm -hmm. collapse and it came back stronger than ever. And, you know, I I was thinking back over it, but Dublin has never really contracted it has always grown exponentially. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's never really gotten any smaller. It's never really had a period of decline mm-hmm. um, in a thousand years. So it's um, been just slowly getting bigger and bigger over that thousand yeah, years. Over that thousand so even, years. even during the 19th century with the famine and stuff, it didn't lose population? Not really. Um, I, don't, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but Dublin was the second city of the British Empire. It was Man, so it really huge. has been like colonized multiple times. That's a sign yeah. of a really strong city that it can withstand multiple waves of colonization. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's the thing I love about Istanbul is that's another city that's just been, you know, colonized again and again by different empires, resisted, you know, it kind of dealt with it when the colonizers were there resisted stayed true to itself and it's just an amazing amazing city and it's gonna and it's continuing to resist new kinds of of internal oppression um but yeah that's that's so interesting that i mean i of course would push back on the idea that if a city shrinks that it's collapsing because you don't actually know i mean it actually seems to be quite natural for cities to grow and shrink over time Mm -hmm. and also change shape like um you know have a grid uh layout and then have a different kind of layout neighborhoods shift around one of the other characteristics of cities it turns out is um that they're mostly built and lived in by immigrants so Mm. defined quite broadly right so that would mean the vikings are kind of immigrants even though they're also you know colonial invaders um but they have immigrated Yeah. yeah um and, you know, and then also, but internal migrations too, like people probably were coming to Dublin from all over, um, mm-hmm. you know, not, they weren't sort of just coming out of the, the coast right there. They would have been, yeah. you know, 
there has been a little bit of genetic work looking at skeletons from Dublin and mm-hmm. yeah, some of it shows that Viking burials are really big, spectacular burials with swords and grave goods. They're really obvious when you find them and yeah. they're lovely. They're, they are very stereotypical. Um, <laughs> so there was some a, a big ancient DNA analysis done last year, two years ago now, um, and showed that you know of those Viking burials, some were Vikings. They were from Scandinavia. They were from the North Atlantic and some weren't. Um, and there's also been some DNA or some no it is it is genetic analysis and not isotopic analysis of some burials from a christian churchyard in dublin and again showing that the population is coming from within ireland so the population mm-hmm. within the graveyard is from within ireland rather than external so if that kind of brings me on to the next point and it's you know who are the people who make the city when you were talking about Pompeii it struck me that you know so much of the labor force there is made up of the liberty the the freed slaves um, and slaves. And slaves. <laughs> it's mostly slaves, yeah. 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 You know, we don't know who these people are or what they do, and we don't know what their relationship is to the hierarchy and to the elite, but they are the people who make the town. They are the people who do who undertake you know building their houses, houses year after year and maintaining the boundaries and sweeping the streets. Um, Repairing the houses. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a city is basically labor made concrete like in some cases literally it's concrete um you know anything you see in a city is made by humans generally or humans working with tools and that's that's your labor force and one of the um very vague phrases that i love that archaeologists use is mobilizing a labor force um which is like it's kind of like talking about ritual activity it's like it could be anything so you could mobilize a labor force by saying hey guys come over here if you come work with me i'll give you goodies or it could be hey guys come over here or i will kill your family and murder you and like so you it it really runs the gamut you know like you can you can carrot or stick your your labor force and of course it's quite complicated because usually it's some combination of the two. There's some sliding scale where you're getting, like say in Dublin, what you're seeing with those Viking graves is that some people who are local people who've been colonized have risen through the ranks and become elites. And now they're taking on the trappings of their Viking elite colonizers, right? They're like, I'm going to have a burial that looks like that rich guy over there whose people Mm -hmm. invaded my country, right? Because that shows that I've achieved something. Um, and then there's all the people who don't get to do that and who might be, might just be laborers who are working class folks who live a bit more in a a more humble way, or they might be slaves. Um, over and over again, we see that cities are produced with slave labor. Um, and slavery looks really different depending on the civilization. Some civilizations have, um, like in, um, Imperial Rome, um, there's a there is some social mobility for slaves. So there's it's very manumission is super common if you survive. Uh, most slaves didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, so you see a lot of slaves who die kind of in their late teens or early twenties. But they there is this like I said very common uh, system for turning them into freedmen and women called liberty who wind up becoming usually employed by their former masters mm-hmm. doing um, anything from. Uh, administrative work, uh, you know, bookkeeping to uh, managing a store for the family. Um, And uh, you see in um, the Khmer Empire at Angkor, uh, there's a very elaborate system of what's called tax slavery or or it's almost like wage slavery, but it's Mm -hmm. basically um, people would uh, be mobilized to do labor for the empire for sometimes a few months out of the year, sometimes it would be every other week. Um, and it was basically free labor for the empire in exchange for, you know, living in the town or getting certain benefits. Like sometimes the bit benefits were quite significant. So, you know, housing, food, um, and it was um, not quite the same as uh, slavery as it was in the Roman empire or slavery that uh, we had in North America, of course, um, because, it was only part-time and it mm-hmm. was kind of an exchange, right? It was, I will give you this labor 
and that's how I'm paying my taxes, basically. And then you give me lots of rights or not lots of rights, but, you know, one or two rights, yeah. um, <laughs> right to live here, right, a- yeah. access to water, uh, which was very important. So, yeah, that's I mean, that's the kind of truth about cities is that they are made of people, um, literally made made by and for people. Um, and the kind of joy of studying cities comparatively and villages too is seeing how each city or village responds to its environment Mm -hmm. and what kinds of changes we see across space um, in terms of everything from how people, uh, where they position the, the village or city, you know, is it along a river? Is it along a road? Is it on a coast? Um, And also what kinds of houses they build. Um, you know, in Angkor, houses are built on stilts because it's a, you know, monsoon mm-hmm. uh, climate. And um, at Cahokia, all the houses are built about a foot below. They have um, a trough that they, they build. So they, day. yeah, they dig yeah. out, which I think they do. They do that in Iron Age cities in, in Europe too, I think, where they, yeah. And it's, t- I, the theory is that it cools it down in the hot months, that if mm-hmm. it's kind of below ground, it's a it's little cool. Subterranean, yeah. Yeah, subterranean. Um, so you see all kinds of adaptations to the environment. And I think one of the, one of the biggest problems that we're having today with our cities is that in the West, we have this one idea of what a city is supposed to look like. And it's big square buildings with cement roads. And Mm -hmm. like, this is how we build. And it doesn't work in most environments. Actually, it turns out um, when I, one of the times I visited Istanbul, um, I was there, I was riding the train um, just for fun. Like I like to go to a city and just hop on the train and, and kind of see the sights. And so it's just a streetcar and it starts raining. And within like five minutes, the entire city is just flooding because it, it isn't designed to deal. It's like all cement and it's not designed for good water runoff. Yeah. <clears throat> and people are like the like the streets are filling up really high. Like there's waterfalls coming down stairways. And it was just like, instantaneous like everything is flooded and everyone's getting on the train like grumble grumble this is normal I'm always standing in three feet of water and you know eventually of course it all runs off but it's like a perfect example of how maybe that wasn't the best kind of urban plan for a place that has flash rain storms like that um it looks great but (laughs) it's not not resilient yeah and that that brings me on to the the next kind of point that I wanted to put to you um, and it is about the the materiality of cities you know they're they're made by people and of people but there's a huge difference in the materials that they're made from sure uh, so you have your stone buildings your um, your wooden buildings your mud buildings um, and then there's the scale of them from the little the, the individual houses the personal family homes right up to those monumental buildings um, and yeah, it is. It's the reaction to the environment and to, to what's required, what's needed and what's wanted at any mm-hmm. point in time. Yeah, I mean, and I think the part about what's wanted, mm-hmm. um, which kind of gets into spiritual questions again and cultural questions, um, that is something that you see reflected in a lot of monumental architecture. Because monumental architecture is often, I guess you could call it silly. It's often quite elaborate and it doesn't make sense. It's like a ziggurat. Why do you need that? Why do you need a giant pyramid? Like you don't need it. You just want it because it looks badass. And in Angkor, for example, what they, I mean, they have these incredible temples, which are also, um, they're not silly. I mean, they're not, they're silly as buildings because they aren't, you can't like live in them or whatever Mm -hmm. you you go and you admire them. They're incredible. They don't, sometimes they don't even have ceilings. They're just full of just these amazing carvings and, um, and atria and beautiful, just beauty, basically nothing yeah. but just pretty stuff. But also at Angkor, they build uh, these massive reservoirs that are also monumental, like seven kilometers long, huge, huge public reservoirs that are, of course, commissioned by the elites, but everyone can visit them. And I think that's a great example of the reservoir at Angkor is both that silly monumental thing where it's like, why did you need it to be so big? 
But Mm. it's also practical because they do need to preserve water during the dry season. So it kind of grows out of an environmental need, but then it becomes this incredible display of like, Mm. look what we can do with our mobilized labor. We can build this massive thing. It's, It's a show of the strength of the community um, and the dedication of the community to the task. Like, look, we all carried baskets of mud and built a giant pyramid together. This is the silly thing that we did together. And so there's that. And then, of course, the environment is is what allows you to build your houses, too. And that's why, for example, in cities in the global south, we see a lot more urban development that's basically just wood and thatch. Um, and in um, Europe and Mesopotamia and the Levant areas, often we see stone being used or mud brick mm. uh, because that's what's available. And uh, and so it's funny because if you're working in Europe, you get used to looking for stone remains, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're working in the Americas, you have to look for things like post holes in the ground because like all the buildings are gone. <laughs> It's like you are going to use a magnetometer to look for your buildings. Yeah. 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 holes and others, you know, disturbed earth, fire, you know, all that stuff. So we have um, fabulous organic preservation in Dublin um, and in Cork and Waterford as well. So we do have the remains of the wooden walls of houses. Oh, nice. So it is. It's beautiful to work with and to look at um, or as many shades of brown as you can possibly imagine. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds nice I mean nothing wrong with that yeah, no not at all um but it it's you know one of the things that I'm thinking of is the the different experiences of walking through these different environments these different material environments and then the differences that has in terms of resource procurement and supplying the towns and again it comes back to farming as well mm-hmm. when we're talking about in Dublin I the town is waterlogged, you know, the river rises, dirt is swept out the door um, and the ground level is slowly rising, rising, rising up to the point where we have four metres of organic deposits. And um, the houses, the houses don't last long, 15, 20, 25 years. So you're in this constant process of restoring and rebuilding and repairing and salvaging from the old to build the new, you know, that door, that door there is still OK. We'll take that and we'll put that in the next house which we're going to build right on top of the last house. So there's this deep connection to place um, through the houses and the boundaries. But it has huge implications in terms of resource management, you know, and the interactions with the hinterlands. Somebody has to be coppicing the woods to ensure that there's a ready supply of building material and to ensure that there are enough, there's enough of everything that is needed for the town within the town. Um, and the, the nature of those relationships, we really still need to, we still need to look into to start to explore. Um, but there is this, there has to be a very different experience than, you know, walking through your wooden town versus walking through your town, your Pompeii, which is made of stone. You know, even mm-hmm. a different sound, a different acoustic sound, the echo on the stone as opposed to the, you know, the, the thud or the thump of walking on a packed clay floor. Yeah, that's true. And of course, a lot of these places would have been built with both, right? Like there would have been a lot of wood at Pompeii. Um, There was stone, but also, um, I guess they built with oak. Um, And yeah, I mean, that is really interesting to think about the sound. I when I was at Cahokia as well. Yeah, the smell. Yes. (laughs) Um, At at Cahokia, um, one of the things one of the students who was working out there was looking at Um, acoustics in Mm. the Grand Plaza because she was just interested in like if you were standing on the central pyramid which is called Monk's Mound who how far could your voice carry because there's this huge plaza below the mound Um, and so she went up there and just yelled (laughs) and like and people kind of position you know other students sort of position themselves around and they she produced a, a poster it was really fantastic but it is in, and that was exactly what she was curious about was like, what would it be like to be there? Like how, you know, you're surrounded by these mounds of earth and, and wooden dwellings. Um, what's what does it sound like? Um, and indeed, it was actually it, your voice could boom across that, yeah. that plaza. It was definitely designed with that in mind, which is not yeah. surprising. But I wanted to get back to what you were saying about um, the relationship between towns or cities and the hinterlands because that's also something in the americas that we're trying to figure out um at cahokia 
absolutely we know people were farming. There's evidence of tons of farms all over the place, but we don't understand how people in the city got that marsh elder or later uh, maize or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're growing a, a bunch of different grains and seeds. And we don't know if it's that they lived out there seasonally. Like, did they just spend a couple months there? Did they have like family members who kind of rotated out? Mm-hmm. Were there people who permanently lived in the hinterlands who were kind of like overseers or, you know, and did those people kind of rotate into the city and rotate out? So we know, like we see these these outposts where like there's little towns where people lived in farmland that are connected with Cahokia. They're very small and 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 they're clearly Cahokian, like they mm-hmm. they have, you know, ritual items from Cahokia. But, you know, we were just kind of guessing like it. It's very different from how we organize it now because they didn't have money um, or, you know, we don't know if they had centralized planning. Is Was it planned by families? Did families mm-hmm. have like a little plot um, or was it like some dude on the on the pyramid? just sort of saying like, okay, you get food, you don't get food. Um, so it doesn't seem like that's what it was, but it could have been. We just don't know. No idea. Yeah. And so, but what we can be certain of is mm-hmm. that, and I think this is very important, is that the city boundary is permeable to agriculture. And that's why yeah. cities always have farms, but they also always have transit to somewhere else whether it's other cities, farmland, uh, fishing areas, you know, hunting areas, like the city is at the center of a network and it has to have its network. And yeah, it's, you never see a city in the middle of nowhere that has no connection to anything else. Like that's just not a thing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it just Um, doesn't exist. No, it doesn't, as far as we know, you know? Um, And so I think that's where the permeable boundary part comes in is that you always, you have to be, when you look at a city, you always have to think, well, what's it connected to? Mm -hmm. Brilliant. What else? I think, I think we've covered so much there. I know that was really I'm, fun. Good. I'm glad I've really enjoyed it. I, I very rarely get to talk to people about towns like this, and about cities and what they really mean and what they don't mean. Um, yeah, it has been great fun. So what's your I'm just curious, what's your yeah. theory about what happened at Dublin? Like, what do you think? What's your favorite hypothesis? My my working hypothesis at the moment is that sequence is a little bit complex. So our very earliest evidence um, is that sometime in the 8th century, there was a farm. And Mm -hmm. it was in this landscape with a few other farms and with a church over there and a monastic complex over there. And just down the road, or not down the road, there was was a crossing across the River Liffey. And it was was at this point of transition with the four major roads across Ireland, four major highways. And all of a sudden... Was the crossing a bridge or...? Um, no, there were. It was just the you know four roads met in this vicinity. Ah, okay, um, I see. Yeah, the crossing across the river was a ford, uh, which see. actually is one of the names for Dublin. It's Bolia Ahuclia, the ford of the hurdles. Ah, um, so it was a ford of wattle panels just laid down so you could walk across. You probably still get damp feet now. Yeah, the river. It's better than drowning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, so it's this busy landscape there, and then. At some point in the ninth century, we have an episode of ploughing across this farmland. So an act of deliberate destruction, removing the farmland from use. Mm -hmm. And then right above that, with no interval, we see the first of these urban houses appearing. Um, So the the working hypothesis is that this is the first urban settlement Mm -hmm. right here on this. But then just a little bit over there, we also have what we think is the Long Fort of Dublin. Now, the Long Fort is the ship camp. It's where the Vikings literally pulled up their ships, their longships, mm. after they've sailed across the North Sea. And they mm-hmm. camp there for a winter, a summer, a few weeks or a few years, or in the case of Dublin, until it became a town. And that's Temple Bar. And that's that's in Temple Bar. That's just the other side of Dublin Castle. Mm-hmm. Remember. Vaguely. I'm looking at a map right now. Oh, yeah. very good. Okay, so do you see the black pool on the map? It's the little green garden 
in the middle of just beside Dublin Castle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's the site. That's literally the Black Pool. There was a tidal pool. There's a river called the Poddle, which winds down to the Liffey there. Um, and that was the site of the Longfort, we think. There are five of these warrior burials with swords and shields. There's a massive, big, long house there. Um, and there's a, a defensive enclosure built just on the edge of that. Um, containing this this longhouse and these burials. So that seems to be the military focus for the Vikings there. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we have this settlement on top of the ploughed farmland. We have this urban settlement springing up around the same time, the 840s, 850s, 860s. So I think there's two different things. There's two different focuses of activity happening in this landscape. And between the two of them, between the military aspect of the long fort. And then whatever is happening in Temple Bar, which is, um, it's on the, the, if you're looking at the map there, do you see Parliament Street just between Dublin Castle and the river? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just there, that is the line of the Poddle, the river Poddle, which runs down from the Blackpool. Um, and I think we have something going, some domestic settlement, non-military settlement happening, happening there around Parliament Street because it's on the confluence of the two rivers of the Liffey and the Poddle. So Mm -hmm. I I think that there's some sort of reason for people stopping there, Um, either because maybe it's easier to, I don't know, is it easier to catch fish there? Uh, is Is there a better means of using the power of the river to do something? Um, is it a use of marine resources there, of water resources that the lads up the river in the Longfort just aren't interested in mm-hmm. because they have a different focus? So it sounds like it's a bunch of it's a bunch of different groups that are using the area, mm-hmm. and they're all and they're building it up for different reasons. But I think so. Yeah, like there's the military aspect, and then there's this first settlement over the farms, which is sounds like that's from local people that are doing that. Yeah. that's And that's before the Vikings get there, right? No, that's all when the Vikings all arrive. All contemporaneous. Ninth century, all contemporary. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a group of people were, a whole bunch of different people were like, let's all meet there. Yeah, all at the same <laughs> oh, time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it was a party. Like, I wonder if there was some huge event and it brought people from all over the place. And then they were like, actually, let's just hang out for a while. Like, yeah. were the Vikings Christian by that point? Not they yet. Were. No. no, not yet. Okay. So they no. wouldn't, it wouldn't have been like they all came to do some Christian thing. Christmas or something I don't know um, yeah I don't yeah no. <laughs> I don't know all of my Christian lore so I'm okay. <laughs> not sure what it would be but yeah uh, but some kind of fancy Christian whatever we just don't have enough evidence yet we don't have enough dates there's only been a handful of radiocarbon dates or dendro dates from Dublin those early layers although they've been found in several different sites they haven't been properly excavated one of our big problems here is that Virtually all archaeological excavation is um, developer-led excavation. So it's not research excavation. And it's res- rescue archaeology. archaeology. Yeah. yeah. So there's everyone has very different priorities in that situation. And Yeah. I mean, yeah. we. Ha- I mean, that's obviously the case in London mm-hmm. and also in, in the States here. Like a lot of Cahokia was rescue archaeology. Yeah. Like we're building a freeway. So, <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of the areas around, in and around Cahokia now are quite, um, they're low income communities. Mm-hmm. So there's just um, a lot of rampant development. And so um, it's, yeah, it's really chaotic. So, okay. So what's your hypothesis? Yeah. Why did they all end up there? Like, why did the Vikings come at the same time that a bunch of local people started building stuff? Like, what were they there for? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. I'm not sure what it is that, that kickstarts that. What's the catalyst? Yeah, um, I do think it makes sense that it was at the nexus of all these roads and rivers, yeah. though. Like, it's yeah. obviously a transit hub. Yeah. It's a port. And it's the reason that Dublin succeeds, that Dublin becomes a much bigger and more successful settlement in the rest of the Viking Ages because of the, that port relationship that, and the relationship with the rest of the Viking world. You know, it is 
one of the biggest ports in the Viking world. And incidentally, it's because of slavery. Dublin has a huge slave market. Of um, local people, like people from... People the, from re- the rest of Ireland, people from outside Ireland, people. Um, there's one record that one of these kings of Dublin, Ivar, in the year 870, he went to Scotland to besiege a fort called Dumbarton Rock. And mm-hmm. he came home the following year with 70 slaves of ca- 70 ships of captives. Wow. So Scottish so, slaves, Irish slaves. Irish slaves, slaves from France, from the Mediterranean, uh, from England. Okay, and so then, super cosmopolitan. So hugely cosmopolitan, hugely busy. Loads of different people, ships coming in from all over the Viking world and then bringing slaves and butter, actually. Irish butter is very well known in um, early medieval Europe. As a, a key oh, so that's export. a big export, yeah. Uh, so agricultural produce leaving Dublin, going to Europe, going to the North Atlantic um, and going as far as Asia um, along the, the Viking trade routes through um through russia to wow yeah it is really good butter (laughs) (laughs) i mean that was that's one of the things i I loved about pompeii was that they had this one export which was that stinky fish sauce called gotham and it was like they just have found so much infrastructure devoted to like making it and it's all outside of town because it was super stinky so But you have to imagine that if you visited Pompeii, you would definitely smell fermenting smell fish on certain days when the wind was right. You'd be like, oh, smell of Pompeii. It's one of those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm conscious of the time, so we should yeah. probably leave it there. But thank yeah. you so much. This has been yeah, thanks so a enjoyable. Lot. Yeah, I can't wait to go back to Dublin in the new times right. yeah. <laughs> and see all of this stuff. This is yeah. super cool.